People all say that I've had a bad break. But today, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Hello, welcome to another episode of the In the Gap podcast. I'm Jason Tabris. Uh, every episode we talk about baseball movies. Uh, it's the, the basically the, the way we kind of close down the show. Usually, usually, not not a lot of structure here, but usually that's the way we close the show. Uh, and we talk about all the classics, Bull Durham's, and, and Field of Dreams, and Major League, and you know things of that nature. Brock Meyer obviously has been a huge topic here uh, since we had the the co-creator Joel Church Cooper on for one of our episodes. Um, but uh, we hadn't done a full episode on it. I've wanted to do a full episode on it, and we've got the perfect guest for it. Noah Gattel is a film critic. He's written for the New York Times. He's written for The Ringer. Um, he's written for The Atlantic. Uh, he's also written about about baseball. He did this great interview earlier this year with uh, John DeMarcio, who's the director for the Mets games on SNY, and has really brought in like a lot of just amazing like you know camera angles this year and like shot just the shot selection is just again he's really influenced by film uh, first as opposed to the sort of standard presentation and John and Noah covered all in this great article which we're going to link to in the show notes uh, that's that was from the New York Times it's one of my favorite articles uh, of of this year and I passed it around to a bunch of people I didn't actually realize that Noah had written it uh, until we were in the middle of this conversation so we do touch on a little bit about. Uh, some of the presentation stuff uh, in baseball and, and sort of the ways that, uh, you know, Noah's Noah's not a big fan of the in-game dugout interview and he makes a good point there. Um, but again, he makes a lot of great points. The, the conversation is largely focused on uh, baseball movies. Again, he's working on a book right now. Uh, he's doing a ton of research for this book about all about baseball movies. I can't wait to read this book, especially after this conversation. It really just like, it's, it's one of my favorite episodes. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the conversation is tremendous. We talk about uh, some of these classic baseball movies that I'll be honest, I had like sort of a preconceived notion about some of these classic movies and Noah brings a, just a really interesting perspective to it and talks about some of the things and some of the like narrative value and the creative like guts really of some of these movies like like Pride of the Yankees, the Gary Cooper film from the, the 1940s, pre-World War II. It's really interesting thoughts that he has on that. We also talk about Ed, the Matt LeBlanc uh, monkey a uh, baseball movie from the 90s. Maybe some less uh, creative boldness with that film, <laughs> but still guts. I think you got to have guts to make a, a movie with a cast member from Friends and and, a, and someone in a in a monkey suit. Um, I think you have to have some guts to do that. So we talk about that film. We talk about the the Albert Brooks, Brendan Fraser film, The Scout, some of the you know the usual classic films as well get looped in there. The Sandlot, uh, again, a really interesting conversation on The Sandlot uh, and why he and I both don't really feel that movie. Uh, and I know it's, it's, again, it's just, it's a really fun episode. So I'm going to stop talking. Uh, you listen to the episode and then I'll come back and I'll tell you where you can find uh, about more about uh, Noah's work. So um, for this conversation, because uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about baseball movies and and sort of the, the culture of that, uh, specifically like 90s baseball movies, and, and which is such a, a subculture unto itself. Um, I did something I've never done before. And I'm so sort of grateful and sort of rueful that I did it. Uh, I watched this afternoon uh, the movie Ed. <laughs> Matt LeBlanc from Friends, Friends fame, of course. Uh, um, someone in a monkey suit, which I didn't realize. I thought, I think it's some, I think knowing like, you know, you have that thing where you sort of know what a movie is. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you haven't seen it, like you get like a sense of what it is just from, you know, absorbing it like a pop culture sponge. Um, I didn't know that it was a fake monkey, which just, just makes it a whole other thing. I was, uh, have you seen, have you seen the movie? I have to tell you, I have not seen it, but I am writing my chapter on the Sandlot next. And the Sandlot was written by the same person who wrote Ed. So I am, I am fuck out of here. It's a fact. <laughs> And I am planning on watching it as part of my research for that chapter. That's amazing. Cause I literally saw the credit, the, the credits uh, at the end after, after I was finished and I'm like, who the fuck wrote this? <laughs> and now I know. Um, and I'm not personally a big fan of the Sandlot as I've, I've, I've mentioned on this, on this show a couple of times. Um, but I, I, I have a lot more respect for it than I do for Ed. I don't want to, now I'm worried about spoiling it for you. I don't think you can spoil Ed. I believe, and you know what? I've read the plot summary of it on Wikipedia, so I know all the twists and turns of Ed. It's not uh, enough. But I'll tell you what: I'm not a huge fan of the Sandlot either, and I know saying that might, you know, discourage people from buying my book one day because I know how strongly people feel about that movie. But it's really just never worked for me. Yeah, I think it's. We're not going to get off the subject of Ed that easily. We're, we'll we'll veer into it. We're coming back. <laughs> I tried. To, we're coming back to Ed for a second because there's just a couple of just there's a little bit of word salad I just want to throw at you uh, about it. But uh, the Sandlot thing, I literally just had this conversation in the last episode, I believe, uh, where to me, I was a huge Major League Baseball kid when I when I was growing up, uh, and the Sandlot's lack of connection to that side of baseball, mm-hmm. whereas every other baseball movie, specifically geared towards kids, was you know. There's a kid in the big leagues or some variation of that. Um, this didn't really have that until the very end. So I think that was for me, the reason why I haven't revisited it. Uh, and I should, and I said, I was going to after the last episode and I lied. <laughs> I, I, I really honestly should uh, rewatch it though. Have you watched it recently? Is this, is this, I have. Yeah. I, I, I watched oh, it when I was putting my book proposal together and oh. it, it didn't work any, any better for me. And I think, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense that it was coming around the time of this incredible baseball movie boom of the late eighties and the early nineties and right in the middle of the kids baseball movie boom with rookie of the year and little big league uh, as part of that. And those were such novel concepts, such fantastical concepts. Although I think little big league is actually grounded in reality in a lot of ways that, that some of these others aren't. Uh, But I just, I, felt, I just rewatched that a couple of months ago. And, and honestly, it, it it's a delightful movie. And the baseball in it, they get so right also. It, it's so good. And it's ahead of its time in some ways. There's that scene when he's proving himself to the to the GM and he explains why bunting is a bad idea. I mean, I mean, that was not a popular opinion in 1993, you know, but it would be welcomed by by the analytics folks now for no. sure. Um, but yeah, the Sandlot. It just, I mean, even though I can't think of another movie exactly like it, it just really felt like well-worn territory to me. I feel like I'd seen that scenario. I don't know on Leave It to Beaver or My Three Sons or so, a million other shows. There's certainly enough baseball movies from back in the day that show Sandlot type scenes, um, it, it, and it, it was just built on this nostalgia for the '50s and early '60s that. I didn't really share. And I was probably a little too old for it when it came around as, as well. I was a teenager, I think. So I was maybe a little too cool, I thought, for a, a story like that. But I've never been able to find the right uh, vibe and, and really latch on to what it's doing. I was a total indoor kid and I grew up watching like Make at Night and stuff. And so like mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, like 
entertainment wasn't necessarily foreign to me. Uh, but even at like nine, 10, 11 years old, uh, very weird indoor kid. But uh, so, but I, I still feel the same kind of thing. I think it missed the nostalgia for it missed me completely. Like I just mm-hmm. didn't, it just didn't, it just didn't click, but I am, I am really genuinely curious about, about watching it again, just to see if it's, if it has, if I feel any, tr- that's, I will say, it's not that it's not, it's not that it's a bad movie, in my opinion. It's, it's, it, it, there is charm to it. The, the acting is good. It is that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like, uh, I don't like um, a Christmas story either. It, it's very similar in tone yeah. to a Christmas Same story. Of, yeah. And then that, so I think maybe that just might be uh, the thing. I'm not really quite sure what that thing is either, but it, it's definitely in that same kind of grouping of that sort of forced, you know, sort of wistful nostalgia. You know, again, when you download, even if you revisit something, I think you're, you're going to be programmed off of your first watch of it uh, and sort of have these preconceived uh, or, you know, preloaded uh, memories of what you thought the film was that you have to sort of combat. Uh, when going uh, up against it, even as an adult watching it. So I think that sort of was the thing where I just was like, this doesn't really, you know, work for me. This doesn't really make any sense to me. So. Yep. Totally agree. But Ed, Ed <laughs> makes sense to no, no one. Um, I just want to, so uh, that film, there is uh, essentially uh, it's uh I just, I don't even know how to describe it. First of all, the monkey is essentially for Mickey Mantle's estate, which what? was, like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a little, little, little spoiler. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to prepare, that's something no one needs to be prepared for. I think actually that should be maybe a disclaimer. Uh, there's just, uh, I mean, in the first five minutes, they eat the family pig. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just like a side joke. Uh, it's a very like, kind of like, you know, the, the cliched, like, you know, farm boy done good kind of thing with Madeline Black as a farm boy with sort of dyed reddish brown hair, kind of. That's also sort of inconsistent throughout the movie. <laughs> Just a lot oh. of wigs in this. A lot of big performances. A lot of scenery chewing. And just like, it's it almost feels like part cartoon. Poor Jack Warden is in this thing. Bill Cobb oh. in this thing. I just feel bad for, for some of the actors stuck in this thing. Jim Caviezel is in this thing. Um as like a really earnest teammate um it, it just yeah it's but yeah basically uh they buy a uh a, a, like sort of like a uh like a packet or, or a brochure called the plan uh from mickey mantle's estate and i guess the monkey is part of the plan <laughs> uh and uh there's also a remark that bothered the crap out of me where it was something about carlton fisk uh not being able to get arrested in boston and that's why he went to chicago Hmm. A great comeback and that's that's not true it makes no sense that makes no sense at all no nope. <laughs> like, what, what 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 um but yeah is there and then uh i will be honest uh i think i may have gone into a slight coma in the middle of it um <laughs> but uh yeah there's a monkey kidnapping sort of scene there's a montage tommy lasorda pops up uh and then the monkey returns and calls the last pitch uh from the stands um and there's also the line wow. There's also a line delivered. Uh, he's not an animal chub. He's a ball player, which is my favorite. Oh, boy, boy, oh boy. So that's what you have to look forward to. Uh, well, was was this in the around the time the Airbud series started? Uh, was this a trend? I don't know. That's a good question. What came first, Ed or Airbud? 
that's a good question. Let's let's like who, like who do we have to blame for this? We're doing we're doing live research here. Well, Ed is 1996. So first of all, who who exactly was rapping Matt LeBlanc? in 1996 because friends started in like 94 yeah see that's the thing my only real memory of ed is that this was exactly when all the friends stars tried to branch out into uh cinema yes you could call this cinema and i remember they everyone was kind of uh judging them and pitting them against each other. This person's film career is going well, this one's isn't. And obviously this was on the extreme isn't side of things. Oh yeah, this I do remember this bombed uh, horribly uh, at, at the time also critically and just at the box office, this did not. I don't need to check that, I'm that I'm <laughs> certain uh, of that. I'm actually going, I'm, I'm curious about Matt LeBlanc's uh, filmography now just to see sort of, where we were i i can't really remember him ever having been in a good movie no this is really the first i mean he was in law i remember him in law in the lost in space movie with william hurt uh that was a bomb Amy rogers that was another bomb uh and uh that was 98 uh he didn't really have anything like movie wise uh really ed was really his first like venture like post friends i see a couple of red shoe diaries episodes good for him uh, but uh, um, I see a cameo in Charlie's Angels, uh, a Bon Jovi music video. Yeah, not uh, that rings a bell. Yeah, so nothing. Yeah, and then really he didn't really do um, much movie wise. But he, I don't. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't want to. But uh, yeah, the friends uh, sort of. Uh, I just would this movie have been better with David Schwimmer? I guess is the question. Well, look, I I looked it up, and Airbud came out in '97. So. Yeah. Clearly, they were made around the same time because I don't think anybody looked at Ed and said, hey, let's try to replicate the success of that. Uh, if anything, it would be the opposite. But what I am seeing is that, you know, Ed came at a time when the baseball movie had definitely peaked. And now it seemed like studios were trying to just kind of find any baseball related script lying around and and put it into production because you had... Um, you had the fan came out the same year, which mm-hmm. is pretty terrible movie. Although I think there's a couple interesting things about it. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, it's a very tense movie. Uh, I don't remember who directed that. I know uh, Tony uh, Scott directed. Well, it was Tony. As I thought, yeah. so it felt like a Tony Scott movie. Um, very much because uh, he directed Last Boy Scout too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, feels feels similar. Yeah. Definitely has that same kind of feel. I thought Wesley Snipes was really good in it, and De Niro was kind of in his uh, sort of, uh, you know, king of comedy mode uh, to a certain Yeah, I liked Wesley Snipes in it too. He's sort of playing Barry Bonds, like before Barry Bonds became that way, you know? He's definitely playing Barry Bonds, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I know. I got off of that, yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, And I I thought the kind of tense relationship between like the entitled fan and the player was pretty interesting, and it, it, it sort of predicted some stuff that would, go on uh in baseball but you know it's just it's such an unpleasant movie i mean it's it's thrillers you know are not always you know rainbows and sunshine but it's in addition to being tense i just find it really unpleasant yeah that's definitely a good takeaway from it it's it's a it's an uncomfortable watch uh for for the places that it goes to uh especially um but yeah uh, it's 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 definitely an interesting uh one and one probably a lot of people don't talk about it for baseball movies just because um it's uh it's so messed up it's pretty Um, messed up and then the other the other movie from this era that i would lump in with these two as sort of a 
you know, let's just put anything baseball related on the screen would be the scout. And I know there are people who like the scout. I'm I not one of them. Uh, but, you know, this is a script that had been bouncing around since the mid 80s. I, Rodney Dangerfield was attached to it at one point when he was making hit movies. Um, and it was directed in 94 by Michael Ritchie, who directed The Bad News Bears. So you can see why the script and Albert Brooks and Ritchie, why they thought this would be a good idea. But it's clearly an example of something that never really had the juice to get made until this baseball movie boom happened. And then all of a sudden they were like, well, baseball movie, let's just let's make it happen. Let's try it. And it didn't work. And I think you could say the same of Ed and the fan and a few others around this time. Yeah, I think. With the scout, I, I just learned about the, the Dangerfield connection and the long tail that that had uh, a few months ago. I was doing research for something and was kind of like, wow, because I remember seeing that in the theater when I was a kid. Uh, I was a Yankees fan growing up. So that was like, oh, wow, he's a Yankee. Got to see that. And also Albert Brooks uh, from a very young age. Uh, I've been always been a huge fan of his. And this is certainly not his best work uh, by any stretch. Um, it has some charm to it. I, it. Most of it is the Albert Brooks uh, side of it. I find it interesting that Brendan Fraser has a, a pretty stacked filmography of playing just like these sort of empty headed, well-meaning like blast from the past and Encino man. And this yep. sort of like, this is obviously the most developed uh, of the characters uh, of the three. Um, Cause he, you know, isn't, you know, <laughs> defrosted or you know, <laughs> up from a, from a, 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 a fallout shelter. But um it's just interesting. It's an interesting side note that uh, Brendan Fraser. I, to those films. I totally agree. It's bizarre. I, he got typecast into this very specific type of role. Characters who are sheltered from society in some way, who come back into society and are so badly out of step that they they appear to be borderline intellectually disabled. And uh, I don't know if that's acting choices that he's making or if that's built into the script. But it is really bizarre how many of those types of roles he played around this time. For sure, I will say the Blast from the Past is actually holds up and is a is a pretty great uh, film. Uh, it's not my, bad. My it's not opinion. bad. I like it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the Scout. He's not great in the Scout. Um, and the, some of the stuff with the Scout. Some of the things, and this ties back well to Ed. And this is some of the things that we even still we still see even today. The sort of magical. Uh, it's almost like like the way that it is with baseball and, and angels in the outfield when the angels are actually uh you know interacting with the players and making things ridiculous things happen some of these movies have i was when i was watching ed you're seeing clips where the person in the monkey suit is like doing like i was obviously on a mini trampoline and they're just <laughs> catching like line drives throughout this montage like four five six line drives and it's it's the same thing as like in the scout when he strikes out like <laughs> strikes out 27 and hits like four home runs or something like this ridiculous like he throws an 81 pitch perfect game if yeah exactly yeah. It's like he's throwing like 150 miles per hour whatever nonsense it is those things that are so uh distant from reality really as a as a baseball fan take me out of something and i liked a lot of the the story i love the storytelling i love the ambition uh narratively uh and the character work and the, and the cast is tremendous in the uh the league of their own show but the way that they did the baseball there in some cases where you see pitches feel like they're sped up or something. And there's sort of like a CG kind of workaround. I just, I, it left me a little, it left me a little cold to it because the, the base, the baseball in the, in the film is, is tremendous. Uh, so I'm curious yeah. thoughts are on that. Cause again, like I said, not to compare it to Ed, it's obviously a very, very different situation, 
But I just, I was, that really just took me out of it. And then you look back at things like Moneyball or you look at Little Big League um, and you see sort of the, the stark difference or the original league of their own, you see the stark difference there where the ball playing aspect, trying to sell that is, is a priority. Yeah, you know, I did a lot of research for this this baseball movie book I'm working on, uh, going all the way back to really Pride of the Yankees is where I start. And looking at the press clippings around these movies and the reviews, the accuracy of the baseball action is always at the forefront of the conversation, although even back then, I mean, there was a lot of talk about Gary Cooper and Pride of the Yankees and all the work that went into making him look like a major leaguer because he was not an athlete really in any way. And this went on with Jimmy Stewart in the Stratton story, uh, Anthony Perkins and fear strikes out just the horrendous baseball that he put on display. It's always been a thing. And in the eighties, they finally started to take it really seriously and get people who could play and who could look like they could play Robert Redford, even at 40 something years old, looked like a pretty good ball player in the natural Kevin Costner, I think really changed the paradigm of what of how of how accurate a ball player could look and then you get to a league of their own and you see how seriously they take the baseball action in that movie i think the 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 tryout sequence at wrigley field in particular is like really really impressive and then you get to little big league where they've hired a bunch of real life players to to you know kevin elster is on the team and guys who are, are real real athletes who have done this and you know it gets to the point where you really can't make a baseball movie and have the action not look good because it will stand out. And I think that's what you're describing. All these years, decades were spent getting to a point where the baseball action in the movie was realistic. And then some of these movies you're talking about seem to have just thrown out the thrown that out the window. And maybe, I don't know, you can't train a chimpanzee to play baseball. That's the problem. But in some of these other movies, you know, they just stop, kind of stopped taking it seriously at some point. Yeah, I think I I don't know where that comes from. If it's just a if it, if I for all we know, it could be a logistical issue, it could be a money issue, um, with the amount of time because it takes time to transform people, and also sometimes you want an actor for something that isn't going to be you know necessarily going to have you know they're not going to be a five tool player necessarily uh, with with that you know they're going to bring so much to the role, but maybe not you know maybe they're not a natural athlete. Yeah, but you can get around it, you know, because in major league, for example. I don't, you probably know this, but Wesley Snipes is not an athlete. Yeah. I mean, there are legendary stories about what they had to do in White Men Can't Jump to make it look like he could play. A lot of it was the use of slow motion, which they employed in Major League quite a bit when it came to Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. To make it look like he was fast when he was stealing a base because he's supposed to be the fast guy. Um, And Tom Berenger was like not a great catcher either now they had charlie sheen who was a terrific pitcher in real life and and that went a long way to establishing the credibility and i i've talked to former major leaguers who say that serrano's swing was pretty good too uh so you know there definitely is a way to fake it but i think they got to this point in the the baseball movie boom here you know past the peak as as i've been saying where they just started getting sloppy And, and i think that's what happened with these movies no, I agree. I think, and I think a lot of that also has to maybe do with the the fact that, you know, as baseball, maybe that has something to do with the fact that baseball has sort of become a little bit diminished in, in terms of its cultural import. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe some of these stories, like something like Moneyball, I would say you could, you could, the story of Moneyball and the kind of behind the scenes aspect of that story 
um, in terms of portraying the behind the scenes aspect of building a baseball team. Obviously, that's more at the forefront than the sort of Cinderella story. It's not like Major League where it's sort of the inverse of Major League where so much of it is what's happening on the field in the locker room versus, you know, the villains that are up in the, you know, the ownership box and stuff like that. So maybe that's what it is too, just a kind of a, a notion that you don't have to like get it right because you're getting the story right and the storytelling about the characters right. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Moneyball, I think, does a good job with both. Although I will say one can go in the opposite direction. It's sort of like what you were saying about the reviews of the older, uh, the more, the, the way older movies. Uh, I remember writing like 3,000 words griping about the most minuscule things with Moneyball when it came out. And I've seen it a bunch since then. And I've, I've learned to um, be a little less up my ass. Uh, with it. Uh, um, and what, what's what's your number one gripe with that movie well the roster stuff with yeah. the, the factual inaccuracies of like you know not really mentioning like Miguel Tejada or you know Zito and Mulder and, and Hudson and you know the you know the, the aspect that it wasn't just this like uh, you know assemblage of of uh you know this uh this uh mm-hmm. island of miss uh you know misspent toys or whatever the title mm-hmm. is butchering terribly uh but it wasn't this like you know total Cinderella story they actually had you know, real talent. And it was more of like a mix of old school scouting and sort of this new school thinking as opposed right. to, you know, they just kind of elevated the the sort of, you know, they made it into, again, it's sort of on the opposite way of the uh, the on-field thing of like the magical aspect of it, sprinkling a little magical fairy dust on it. They did the same thing with the front office uh, sort of uh, mindset there with, with Moneyball, in my opinion. Very different, very, a, a lot easier to get away with uh, than, than kind of, you know, making you know people jump 10 feet high and throw 200 miles per hour uh on the diamond yeah Uh, i mean they turned it into a a, in a weird way it's actually a very conventional baseball movie you know even though it it overturns some of those conventions like the importance of the scout or showing a lot of on-field action it is they, they did turn it into this sort of like uh one guy brings the whole team together as mm-hmm. uh, this uh, this uh, uh, underperforming team, you know, goes on this incredible run, gets it all together. They turned it into a, a fairy tale and, and that's what movies do. But I, I did hear, you know, that there was an original version of that script that Steven Soderbergh was going to make, which I've never read. I don't know. I don't know if you have, but no. a- apparently it was much more realistic. It featured real life players, uh, sort of like a talking heads uh, style uh, documentary mixed together with a, a more fictional narrative. And I would love to see that because that's I-, I like Moneyball, but that sounds like a much more interesting movie. That does sound like a very interesting movie. I would be definitely curious to see that as well. But again, I, like I said, I've, I've come to um, enjoy uh, the other one. I am surprised the success of Moneyball uh, didn't really lead to, not that I thought it was going to lead to a boom, uh, but it didn't really lead to much of anything as far as uh, any kind of, you know, return to, to baseball movies being something that was kind of in the mainstream. We've sort of got the, the Disney-fied stuff. We've got sort of the the, you know, Walmart DVD bin options. Uh, you know, I know there's one with like Joe Manganiello that's out. I don't know the name of it. I've seen like Josh Duhamel's uh, Bill Lee uh, movie, which had some charm to it, actually, in my opinion. Um, I haven't I haven't seen that one yet, but uh, you know, I think I think there's a few things that happened here. One is that you know the movie industry itself changed a lot in the last ten years, and basically you know, the space that there is for sports movies in general is just so small mm-hmm. right now. Um, anything that's not a franchise movie, the studios are really not that interested in. And, you know, outside of directed DVD sequels, uh, like to the Sandlot, uh, you know, baseball movies don't really lend themselves to, to franchises. But I, I also think that 
the baseball movie has sort of moved to television. You know, in the last 10 years, we've had Brockmire. We've had one season of Pitch. We had Eastbound and Down, which is sort of a baseball show. And now we have a league of their own. And apparently there is a Field of Dreams TV show that that Michael Schur is is trying to make, who huh. made, uh, you know, Parks and Rec and, and The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're still being made in a way, but they're just not being made for the big screen. And I think that has more to do with the movie industry itself than any particular trend about baseball. Those all speak to specific things that we're talking about, though, I think. I think Brockmire feels like one of those things where the on-field uh, action is is inconsequential, mm-hmm. uh, completely inconsequential. Uh, pitch is, I think, very good on-field, but I also think pitch is weighed down by uh, its, its uh, official uh, sort of designation uh, with Major League Baseball, uh, mm-hmm. having sort of a, I don't know, I don't know how much of a hand they had in it, but just obviously to get that license uh, the process has been explained to me that it's a very expensive, pro- that, it, that it's very, it's a very complex process to go through uh, and that sometimes it's not worth it. Um, obviously the people behind pitch thought it was worth it. I don't, I feel like the end results kind of felt a little, I don't know, watered down mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the storytelling. You could tell with something like that, where you're talking about uh, potential presenting a, a story about uh, a woman in major league baseball for the first time and breaking that barrier I don't think that's a story where you want to treat it with kick gloves. I don't think that's a story where you want to dance around any of the, the kind of cultural differences that would pop up in a locker room uh, with bringing a a woman player into a team. I think that's where you're, you're, that's where the story gets interesting uh, is showcasing that uh, to to that level. Um, So I feel like that's sort of, uh, we get short change there. So I wasn't exactly shedding a tear when that show got canceled uh, because it didn't really feel like it was worth my, my time personally. Um, and then Eastbound and Down is another is the thing where it's sort of the story of uh, let's do it's sort of like if you want to compare it to like a sports movie like the way I don't know if it's the way back or the way way back the one with uh, Ben Affleck the way he, back yeah yeah the way back where he's a a basketball coach a high school basketball coach but he's dealing with a lot of personal demons and it's sort of a, a mix of like that personal you know story of redemption for him completely off the court but also sort of the on the court thing and, and it has some of those like same you know similar you know those cliches for for any kind of sports movie which i thought was a very interesting film and a great performance but it's eastbound and down obviously is a very different thing from that but it's more about sort of baseball is just just happens to be the thing that the guy does yeah uh, it's for it's 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 frustrating and well, it's understandable in a way because i do think the best baseball movies in some way, they are incidentally about baseball, like a league of their own could be about it's really a story of two sisters, you know, and that that could be set anywhere. They yeah. happen to set it in the world of baseball. So that's understandable. But, you know, the that there is. Bull Durham, epith- I think it's, it's Bull Durham, I think, is another one that you could put into that class where it, it doesn't necessarily have to be about baseball. It's charming that it's about baseball, but it doesn't have to be. I totally agree. That is a story about three distinct individuals and the way they interact with each other. Now, it is also an incredible uh, baseball movie because that world of baseball is so richly drawn. Mm-hmm. But but theoretically, yes, you could put you could put it anywhere and it would make sense. Um, but and what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So when you get to things like Eastbound and Down and and, and Brockmire and I mean, that shows that there is an interest in baseball related uh films and television there really is uh i think maybe you know shooting stuff on a baseball field like making that 
uh, encompass a large part of your narrative. I think it's difficult to do. I think it's very expensive. I think you do, do need more buy-in from big corporations, whether it's, you know, the people who own the teams or MLB themselves. And I think, you know, with, uh, with the economics of this being what they are, which is that, you know, shows like this are like, they're hard to get made in the first place. I think that is just something that, that sort of has been, been cast off, but it's a shame because I think they have every part of it right there, except for the part of it that I love the most, which is watching the personal interact with the on-field action. No, I agree. I, I, again, I like, I mean, again, I like, I like all sides of it. I, I love Brock Meyer, uh, with my whole heart uh, for again, because it was romantic about baseball in a lot of ways, but also and, and woven again, it did such a good job of weaving in that kind of personal redemption narrative mm-hmm. within the game of baseball, but also being really honest about some of the problems uh, that baseball has uh, just culturally and sort of the, you know, the ways that it kind of disconnects from people that it just falls in love with its own tradition. And, you know, I just, again, I think it's just such a well-made show, but obviously made by people who love baseball. That's why you say Field the Dreams by Mike Schur. That's very exciting to me because Mike Schur is, is obviously uh, a, a huge baseball fan. So somebody who knows the game, uh, who has a lot of affection for the game, but who can p- maybe come at it uh, in a different way. Although I guess Field the Dreams doesn't really open itself up to any kind of criticism of anything baseball. It's more of a, I mean, again, I don't know how they're going to do it. Well, I think the only problem was that they had Shoeless Joe hitting from the wrong side of the plate. That's That's <laughs> the only thing I've heard. I will correct I, that. I'm sure <laughs> I have a couple of problems with field of dreams. Uh, actually, uh, I, I, it's one that's sort of, uh, over time, this is sort of the opposite of what I was saying with Sandlot, where I sort of like got to a place where I didn't like it and then had to try and see if I could, I have to try and see if I can walk, walk that back, uh, field of dreams. I, uh, had a very high, I uh, hold in very high esteem and through, uh, uh, watching it over and over and over over the years, uh, I feel like every single time I watch it, I just take more and more away that I don't like and feel like there are more plot holes uh, with it. Um, <laughs> That's so funny because I've gone in the complete opposite direction with it. When I first started watching it, or rewatching it as an adult, I, 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 I could not figure out what all its disparate parts had to do with each other. I'm like, why is this baseball movie also about book banning in Iowa? And what does that have to do with like, a civil rights writer and and a doctor in Minnesota. Like I could not figure out why they told the story the way they did. And it, it just started to add up to nothing to me. And then over time, I have started to jive with it much more. And and all these disparate parts have cohered for me in a way where you sort of have to accept it as almost dream logic. And and the last time I watched it, it jumped up in my esteem like by a huge amount. And it really clicked for me, but it took until I was 42 years old for that to happen. I feel as though I have a hard time now getting over the notion as a, as a married man uh, that my wife wouldn't have me committed if I <laughs> in the first act uh, of that. I just feel like that would be the natural response that her going along with it, despite the fact they were about to lose the house uh, and the everything I just... I don't know. It just feels a little hard. <laughs> that's the thing I have a hard time. So well, it's coming out of the cornfield. That's fine. It's the, <laughs> the, it's the mortgage drama that I have an issue with, apparently. 
you get the sense that the writer was not married. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, somebody said that to me once before. I don't know who it was, but uh, yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's definitely the, the sense. But again, also to be completely frank and 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 uh, and uh, offer some candor, uh, I uh, have a very complex relationship with my father, and I definitely don't love uh, stories that sort of insist uh, any story that feels like it it pushes you to pick up the phone. Uh, and forget any things like that. I, I don't really love those kind of stories. I, I feel a little uh, like I'm trying to be manipulated uh, by movies when when it. But that may just be a personal thing. I guess. No, I I can I can certainly relate to that. I, I I actually for a long time thought that my problems with Field of Dreams were rooted in the same thing, which is mm-hmm. that um, my father was around, and I wished that he weren't. <laughs> we had a bad relationship, and I have no nostalgia for for wanting to play catch with him you know or or feeling like I did anything wrong really major in that relationship but I you know I think I think some of the the problems with the wife character and the father for me can be understood as sort of symbolic of some of the generational issues uh, that the film is exploring you know the the character of Annie uh, played by Amy Madigan she you know they make they show her in those early scenes going toe to toe with the the school board fascist in that really terrific scene where they're talking yeah. about banning a book, and she's this like really fiery, independent-minded woman. Oh yeah, and Medigan's tremendous in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally, and and I can see why it would seem strange that she all of a sudden is relegated to this role of this wife who supports her husband on this crazy, self-destructive dream. But you know, I understand it as like these are actually in sync, these two things, because she is an idealist, you know, and because she comes from this generation of the '60s, which the movie is very much about, you know, in, in which, uh, you know, as you as we get older, holding on to our idealism, like that is a big part of what the movie is about. So I, I'm I'm disappointed the way it turns her into that archetype, but on the other hand, I do think it's somewhat consistent with the politics that the movie is exploring. And I think you could say the same thing about the father stuff. You know, I I have no great longing to have a catch with my departed father personally, but I do think there's something I am kind of moved by this idea of these two generations who grew so far apart, like maybe more than than two generations ever have in, in such a short period of time. Um, coming together in that moment and bonding over something like baseball that that does move me a little bit I, I do feel that way about baseball that it is something that can bridge pretty pretty like two people who are far away it can bridge divides like really as well as anything so it does work for me if I step back from it to that degree no 100 I think divorcing myself and my own personal story from that uh, yeah, the idea of baseball as a uh, as a you know a, a joiner between generations. I remember growing up, my grandfather and I playing games where he would name players from like his era. I would name players from like the modern era. We would just go on and on for hours knowing <laughs> about games. Uh, that really instilled in me a love for the the total history of the game uh, because I wanted to know those names. I wanted to know those stories, um, and so that to me is like that's how I find like a personal connection to that and even through my father it was the thing it was probably the thing we talked most about was baseball um so it's it's definitely i get the and even now i have uh uh i wasn't a mets fan and i became a mets fan and part of the th- reason why i've been really enjoyed that over the last couple of years is because i have a relationship with with a cousin of mine who i hadn't talked to in years and years and years and that's not how we reconnected but 
it's you know it has bolstered the relationship it's something to talk about and it's a shared you know it's it's just a it's a shared uh an interest and that's always a good thing to have with people so so are you are you a yankees fan who became a mets fan or are have you are you now just a mets fan it's a complicated uh uh road uh that i've, I've talked about a few times on here so i don't want to go too too long on it uh because i just realized to myself i probably talk about this on every episode uh i um well it's very unusual oh I it is see where it comes people. up people's head yeah people's head turns uh when i say it so i uh, started as a yankees fan uh lived on long island new jersey connecticut new york all those places uh yankees fan huge john manningly fan my dog's name is manningly uh i uh grew up as a yankees fan until from like 90 until 2014 when uh when they let robinson canogo that was a big part of it Mm. uh and signed jacoby ellsbury i think i was just like i can't with this they just keep buying these guys randomly it was Mm. just so i started following the orioles because i loved box showalter when i was a kid uh as manager and i i was i i've been i love the game i love i don't really hate any specific teams although i'm starting to a little bit with the with the braves uh and so that's that's helping me along with get past my lack of hate in baseball mm-hmm. um but um rooted for the orioles for for a while uh was you know there for showalter's last game and stayed with it for a couple of years but i can't the idea of i love a small market team that is uh scrappy and and you know you know, Buck Schalter had this saying of like, you know, we like our guys and, and you know, basically the idea of being world beaters and we're not going to do things the way everybody else does. We're going to do things our way and being able to have some results with that and play good baseball, despite, you know, the, the odds being stacked against you financially and, and otherwise. But when a small market team just gives up, it's the worst. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bad product on the field. It's not entertaining at all to watch bad baseball, like bad baseball. It's just not entertaining. They're not trying. I, I reject the notion that you have to sit out five seasons to get back to 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 a place where you're competing. Uh, I understand mm-hmm. wanting to you know dip the budget a little bit and not necessarily quote going for it every year, but you still have a responsibility to your fans who shell out. You're not your ticket prices aren't dropping. Mm-hmm. The product isn't dropping. Like the the, the cost that to, to me as a fan isn't dropping. Yeah, my MLB.tv subscription price doesn't drop because my team's gonna has decided they're gonna suck for the next five years. That's right. So I had a lot of uh problems with kind of witnessing. And as a Yankee fan growing up, I never never had seen I mean, they were terrible when I was a kid, but I didn't realize it was just oh Don Mattingly, Roberto Kelly, who cares? They're great. Um Steve Sack. Well- they always had great players, even when yeah, they had great that. players. They just couldn't put it together. But I, they also, in short order, started putting it together when I was a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. with, when Schultz arrived, and they started getting pretty good. And like even '92, you you started to see the signs of life. Like I remember vividly. Like you know, okay, well, you know, they get you know they're getting better. '93, uh, '94, those years were very exciting. Um, and so, but I never saw like a rebuild, like a, you know, just kind of let's just scrape everything. And so that was really, it was kind of gross, honestly, to the, the, the business aspect of baseball is never clearer than when you're rooting for a team that's in the middle of a rebuild. Mm-hmm. And you just feel so unimportant to the process. <laughs> like you really feel like so inconsequential to the process. They don't give a crap about your money. They don't give a crap about, you know, your interests, what you're, you know, how much a team means to you, what, you know the feeling of watching a compelling season does to people. Cause it's like, a sh- I, I equate it to a show uh, baseball. It's, it's, it's like when the Mets got eliminated, it was the end of my favorite TV show. I watched it every night. <laughs> it was drama every night. They didn't win every night. It was, I loved it. I did again, even though they didn't make it all the way, I'm fine. I, lo- I got so much joy out of that. 
I the last couple seasons of rooting for the Orioles was so damn joyless because there was just there was just no spark, especially in the first couple of years. There was no spark at all. Yeah, at all. And uh, so that so yeah, I, I decamped uh, a couple of years ago uh, and started rooting uh, for the Mets. I still care about the Orioles. It's been nice to see. I haven't really watched like too much, but it's been nice to see a couple of things click for them. But on the other hand, it's also disappointing because it it creates the po- another possible test case for other teams to be like, okay, mm-hmm. so here's what we're going to do. We're going to suck for the next five years um, because it just becomes an endless cycle. Look at the pirates or, you know. Yeah. Like- I mean, I, I think, you know, well, first of all, I think, I think what you've done as a fan, I find it kind of admirable because uh, I'm, I'm quite anti tribalism in, in life in politics and, and in sports as well. I think it's, it's a very toxic thing to say that, you know, your team is the best and the other team is the worst. And I hate, I hate the Phillies because, you know, they threw at my pit and one of my batters once and we had a brawl. I mean, this is, this is the kind of identification with a team that I think can, can really be harmful. And I, I found it harmful in my own life. And I, I went through a period uh, last year where I, I actually considered switching teams because my relationship with the New York Mets had become so toxic. And I, I did not, follow through with it. But I did do some things uh, to help myself like de-identify, dissociate with the team. Uh, I got rid of a lot of my Mets gear uh, and I've made a strong, strong effort to not use the word we when describing the team, but to use the word they. So I definitely am quite sympathetic to this idea of Switching around, switching it around, being fans of different teams here and there. I've not been able to pull it off myself, but it really sounds like a healthy way to go about your fandom. It's funny. I was just doing, I was literally just uh, transcribing uh, an interview that I did uh, that's going to run with work. Um, and I was talking about uh, politics and the notion of uh, sort of that sort of we thing with politics and mm-hmm. sort of uh, adopting a politician in, into the fabric of you, uh, which I find super creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, on both sides of it, uh, I just don't. I, I, I vote. I vote Democrat, uh, even though I'm an independent. Uh, but I don't. I didn't have an Obama poster. I just, to me, a politician is an employee, and I want them to work for me. I never feel like they've got it in the bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another reason why I'm not like a specific party because I don't want to be identified as. Oh, he's to say he's reliable vote. We don't have to do anything to, to earn his vote. I never want that. So it's sports. It's sort of the same thing. I never want them to feel. Oh, they, we got him. He's got his tickets. He's got his season tickets. He's got his shirt. He's a diehard. That's the, the it's a, that's a very uh, sort of uh, dangerous phrase. He's a diehard. Mm-hmm. Well, stop trying to kill me uh, <laughs> with, with, with your really awful uh, decision-making. Yeah. The idea is they think you will tolerate anything. So yeah. they, they treat you like crap. It's like an abusive relationship. It is. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, <laughs> from what I've heard, the Mets really excelled at that for, for years and years. Um, but I will say the one thing that has made it easy to do that, and I'll tell you, there's a whole process, and I wanted to, I'm curious about your process with it. Um, but my whole process was like, okay, step one, uh, like read a couple things on like prospects and get familiar with like mm-hmm. who's on the farm and find a beat writer that you like. And like Rock Cabaco for the, the Orioles on, on Masson was like tremendous. And I still miss I, the SNY guys for the Mets, like on their site, it's like these were these articles, like 150 words. Like, it's almost like, <laughs> it, like what else is the, uh, and it's like Rockabaka would do like 600 word posts every day on the most minute thing in like Oriolesville 
Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this guy's the double A hitting coach. Okay, I'm reading it. Okay, I'm gonna read it. Uh, so I do miss stuff like that, but I also miss like I, I haven't gone back to, and I should. Uh, I grew up as like a newspaper kid. Like I would read the paper back to front when I was like ten and eleven, like Lubica and like you know Daily News, the Post, Newsday, like all three. Uh, so I miss like that level of sort of detail. But it's the things like that. It's the those are the hard things to shake. You get used to a certain, you know, media personality. And and I've been blessed with great announcers throughout, like the Yankees announcers. I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Michael Kays, but like when I was a kid, Phil Rizzuto and Tom Seaver and Bobby Mercer and Dwayne Stats and, and uh, Tony Kubek and Al Troutwig, it's like, that's, those guys were great. And with the Orioles, uh, with, uh, with Gary and with, uh, with Jim Palmer, tremendous. Uh, and the, with the Mets, it's, it doesn't get any better. Uh, that's a big part of what keeps me coming back i mean i have gone through they're so good as you said it's it's a show and some broadcast teams are better at making it a show than others and you know i've been watching gary keith and ron for 16 years now probably 120 to 140 nights or days a year and I mean, they—they're my—they're my friends. They're my family, and they—they they make a—they make every game interesting. If it's a blowout, they just start goofing around, and it's like hanging out with my friends. And it's not—and and this year, you know, we've all become aware of some of the guys behind the scenes, like John oh, yeah. Demar- John Demarsco, the director. He's gotten a lot of attention this year. I wrote a piece about him, uh, and some of the really innovative things he's doing. So every time I think about going to another fan base and you know i have the mlb radio app and sometimes if i'm doing the dishes or the mets aren't playing one night i will listen to say a radio broadcast for another team some game that i'm vaguely interested in and i know there are some good ones out there but there's a lot of bad ones out there too and to leave gary keith and ron to go watch a subpar broadcasting team like that would just be dumb i you know no matter how much grief the mets give me like I always can count on that broadcast team to entertain me and, and at times, honestly, to comfort me as well, because when things are doom and gloom with the Mets, as they have been a lot in recent years, those guys always kind of they know what to say to, to, to comfort me and also to kind of reprioritize and reorient me and help me figure out how to feel about stuff to make it OK. There's so much authenticity to, to what they do. Uh, also, I think that and that I really appreciate some of these. I mean, some of these broadcasts really feel uh like you know direct from home office uh and and i've and i i do bounce around and watch uh, other broadcasts from time to time uh i'm a night owl so i watch like late night uh like baseball on the west coast and and some of those some of those guys are great and some of those guys and i and, and like joe davis specifically it's really good uh but yeah. uh, sometimes you listen to a broadcast and it's just like what are we doing here guys like it's just and honestly i will be honest living down here in the cherry hill area uh when the mets have played the phillies i've had to endure <laughs> john crook who is just terrible like i just can't fucking stand having to watch the mets play the phillies i might just move back up north just so i can <laughs> to john crock call a baseball game nine times a year or however many times uh but i will say uh i didn't know that you wrote uh that article uh on, on the mets director and i it's one of my favorite baseball articles of the year and i passed it around to a bunch of people that was a great article oh thanks man that's really uh, really nice to hear it was um it was so much fun to write because I'm a movie guy and I'm a baseball guy and and I was watching the Mets all year and sort of noticing they were doing some different things. And then I saw him 
tweet about it. And he said they were these cinematic innovations. And I started looking at, at them again and seeing how they really did seem like they were drawn from the traditions of film. Some of the things he was doing with split screens and, and all that. And it was such a delight to talk to him and, and get to talk baseball, but also talk about a shot and uh, Goodfellas and uh, Brian De Palma's shot and all these other things that I love. That that was really an article I was I was born to write, and uh, I was glad to see it. It shed some light on his work, which I think is really really just uh, extraordinary. Yeah, it was exactly when when I I read it, uh, I was really delighted that uh, he got that level of exposure uh, because it's definitely. Uh, again, it's been a game changer uh, to me, and I hope that it spurs other teams and, and, and networks to kind of invest in trying to look at these, not just as like basic, oh, this camera's here and this camera's here, and they just watch the action. Because again, it's the same thing as like the broadcast. They, uh, again, Keith, Gary, and Ron do it really well. And and I know from when I was a kid, like watching like, you know, Tim McCarver and, and you know, I know Ralph Kiner and stuff like that, like going mm-hmm. back in, in the day, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't like, an only Yankees kid. Like I watch Mets games sometimes. Like I was always curious about like what was going on. I never hated the Mets and uh, watching some of those, those broadcasts again, any kind of, and thinking about like, you know, Ben Scully and the Dodgers and, and occasionally checking in on, on those broadcasts over the years on MLB TV, which is a great, a great thing to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like back in the ESPN with John Miller and Joe Morgan. Um, they were phenomenal. Yeah. Storytelling though, bringing in mm-hmm. that aspect of it, uh, I love that part of it. I love the idea of things like the Manning cast and, and I don't love the execution necessarily, but the idea of stuff like that is is great too, to have some of that storytelling stuff. And like, there are some great moments, like even with the, the A-Rod and, and Michael K thing with like when they had uh, Jeter on, I thought was pretty solid. And when they had Paul Simon on, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But- see, to, to me and John DeMarcico in that article, he, he talked about this as well. Like, MLB is trying so hard to make the broadcasts exciting and feel immediate. And, you know, some of the stuff they're doing just doesn't interest me at all. I, I am not interested in the uh, dugout interviews in the middle of the game that they're doing now. I'm not interested in Apple TV telling me the gambling line and how it changes. Oh, I hate it so much. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is basic storytelling stuff that they need to do, visual storytelling and oral storytelling, and they've got the people to do it. They just have to put a priority on it. And look, I I don't know if I'm the guy that they're trying to get. Like, I'm watching the Mets no matter what. If there were no announcers and it was filmed on like a VHS video camera, I would still be watching it. But I really think that that is the foundation of what could make these broadcasts better, not some of the newfangled tricks that they're they're opting for. That said, the idea that they're at least doing some kind of experimentation mm-hmm. uh, is exciting to me, even if it's just I don't want them to stick with a bad idea just because it's it's a new idea. Uh, but there are certain things like I think it was a Peacock game this year that they actually had no announcers uh, and they just had like reporters from the stands doing like man on the street interviews with fans and that really didn't work for me, Hmm. but I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the the try of something like that. I thought the Apple stuff, some of the Apple stuff, I thought the announcers uh, got uh, a lot of undue criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that it wasn't like the most polished product and it is always a bit of a come down from, from Ron Keith and Gary. Uh, But overall, I didn't think it was terrible. Um, but yeah, the betting lines and the win probability and all the stats, I don't think stat, I feel like we're moving away rapidly from this. I, there's an article that I have in my tab that I can't wait to read about the, uh, 
the sort of the curse of analytics on baseball and also culture that somebody wrote in the Atlantic. I think it published today or yesterday, mm. uh, but it looked really interesting. I didn't get a chance to read it yet, but I'm not a big fan of analytics personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the idea. It's another reason why I like Buck Schalter, and I feel like he was a good fit for the Mets this year was because it was a manager who was basically, it wasn't like ignoring analytics, but it was also just using it as a part of the puzzle uh, because I believe, and oh, this also goes even to professionally, just as a writer, um, like to me, I have a gut notion of what a reader wants to read, what's interesting, what should be highlighted, what you know doesn't need to be highlighted, um, developed over years and years of being in the industry and also years and years before that of reading uh you know really good writing and learning from that um so to me some kind of analytics thing sort of takes the soul out of that sometimes with you know certain seo things or this or that and i'm not super exposed to that on a day-to-day basis uh so it's easy for me to comment on that but i don't know just i'm not a huge well, fan. I, I, I like the idea the notion that and again to, not to quote showalter uh again because it makes me sound like i'm like a a fanboy here but uh, the idea, the, the phrase of that's why we play the games, uh, it really resonates because that's the point. Yeah, and, and yeah. instinct instinct and experience has to continue to play a role. I mean, I, I'm a fan of analytics, you know, as a fan to the degree that it can help me appreciate certain things. You know, when Kyle Schwarber hit that home run off you Darvish uh, in, in the playoffs this year, you know, the one that went really, really far, uh, you didn't need analytics to tell you how beautiful that was the poetry of that swing and that home run. But then when you find out it had an exit velocity of 120 miles an hour and it went 488 feet, I appreciate knowing those numbers in addition to seeing the beauty of it. But I think you're really correct in that the, the, the analytics and the technical aspects of baseball it can really overwhelm at times. I think for the players, not just for us as oh, fans, yeah, sure. you know, it can overwhelm uh, their instincts as ball players. I mean, these are guys who've been playing ball their whole lives. They have these instincts, but I've seen it with the Mets. They brought in this guy, Hugh Quattlebaum, a couple of years ago to be the, the hitting coach. And this was a strictly numbers guy who never played the game at, at, a, at the major league level, or I'm not even sure at any level. And you could watch the players tighten up in response to that approach. This was the year, maybe it was last year when they had this habit of taking center cut fastballs, like they're just not swinging at them. And it was, it was a, it was a pattern. We were all watching as fans and like, why are they not swinging at these pitches? And it was because they were two in their heads and they had lost their baseball instincts. That's my interpretation anyway. So I, I think it's a real risk with certain teams. You see some teams who are really good at integrating the instincts and the analytics, and then other teams just haven't quite, figured out how to do it yet and it's one of the hardest things to watch as a fan when you see players who are stuck in their own heads and have sort of forgotten all that they learned yeah no for sure and i think um it's sort of what's your 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 point with with the schwarber home run uh yeah i the exit velocity uh of something like that is interesting the exit velocity on every line drive Mm -hmm. uh, and hard hit ground ball and the notion of players being like well i don't know why they're having success like strider but they all had a bunch of you know you know lucky hit it's still a hit man yes there's a skill to blooping something uh and look at jeff mcdill what a batting title Mm -hmm. uh doing that uh and also jeff mcdill i feel like has gone on the record talking about that information overload and how things were kind of clarified this year i feel like him and alonzo and a few other guys yeah i know jd davis said it which is maybe the best uh (laughs) The, the best case point uh with, with the, <laughs> but um 
Yeah, I think it was definitely a, a little bit of uh, information overload. So I think that's, you know, that can definitely be uh, a part of it. It's not uh, overloading these guys uh, with with so much information. Yeah, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, to your point, the, the Bregman versus Judge home runs in that game, uh, the last series, you know, I wasn't that interested in all of this agonizing over, you know, well, Judge's, the ball that was caught at the wall that Judge hit was hit harder than the Bregman ball, but Bregman's ball was a home run. I mean, you know, that's baseball. Every stadium is different. The, yeah, the, which I love. The, yes, that's one of the great things about this game is that there is no uniformity in the stadiums, that you can hit a ball hard and it can be an out and you can barely touch a ball and it can be a game-winning hit. I mean, that is baseball. I don't want to reduce this to, you know, pure merit. And if, if it's all based on whoever hits the ball hardest wins, well, well we have the home run derby for that. We don't need yeah. baseball to be that as well. I'll go back to something you were saying uh, about the kind of the in dugout interviews uh, and the sort of, I like the mic'd up stuff with players. I feel like that has potential depending mm-hmm. on the players. Uh, I think major league baseball could probably do a better job of finding of kind of rooting out who the more compelling personalities are and, and focusing on them. Um, but I understand <laughs> it's a complex sort of dance to figure that out. Um, some baseball players are really boring. Yep. I mean, they really are. I've interviewed a few. It's just, they just, it's just fact is fact. It's, I don't know if it's boring or it's just really super reserved or also you just, you know, you know, there's a difference between the first interview and a junk and then the last interview and a junk. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. sometimes people, the well is just dry. And so with baseball players, I do wonder sometimes if it's just these guys have been asked, there's no way to ask them a question they haven't asked uh, 9,000 times, because especially in the New York uh, situation when there's like 30 beat guys, uh, asking them, you know, 30 questions after every single game. Uh, I imagine it's a bit tiring and a bit hard to, you know, feel like you need to get up for every conversation. Um, but baseball yeah. players can be a little, the, the scene in Bull Durham is, and I've, I've said this before, the scene in Bull Durham with talking about the cliches and stuff is so on point. You know, those cliches are really uh, important. Like it doesn't really behoove a player to give an honest answer most of the time. Yeah. It, like it might help, but it could, it, it's equally as likely to get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's really no downside to spouting a bunch of cliches if you're a ball player. And, you know, just in general, I find one of the least interesting things you can do is when a player makes an incredible, athletic, super heroic play to save a game, ha- have him come off the field and have somebody put a mic in his face and say, you know, what were you thinking when you made that play? <laughs> like, oh, shit, I just did that. <laughs> They're not thinking anything. That's the beauty of it. You know, I mean, that's why we watch is because these people are transcending yeah. language. I mean, they are. That's what physical uh, that's what athleticism is all about. So, you know, most of those interviews I find pretty useless. I do think you're right. You have a better chance of getting something at least entertaining when they're mic'd up on the field because they're you know, they're showing off a little bit and it gives you a little bit of a more candid look into the game. I mean, what I love about Bull Durham, you mentioned it, so I'll, I'll use that as an example. But what I love about that movie is that it showed me when I was young and I saw it, um, maybe not the truth, but at least a version of the reality in all the places that TV cameras couldn't go on a field. Yeah. You know, it showed me the locker room. It showed me the dugout. It showed me the mound visits. It showed me the argument between a player and the umpire. And to me, that's what baseball movies can do uh, that really makes them fun for for fans. 
So I think the being mic'd up on the field gives us a little bit of a glimpse of that. The, the what happens behind the curtain when when the cameras are rolling, but we're not normally close enough to be able to hear it. Yeah, I think that's sort of the charm of something like um, I forgot for some reason I'm blanking on the name, but the thing on on HBO with the NFL. Um, oh, a hard knocks, hard yeah. knocks, which I haven't watched in many seasons. I will I will admit, but uh, last time I watched it, I mean, really, I mean, many many seasons. Um, but I remember it being sort of uh, a little bit unvarnished, which is mm-hmm. the thing I, again, and it goes back to like I was saying with pitch, the difference between like pitch and other things that use an MLB logos and, and stuff. Uh, it to me is it's a stark difference. Uh, you can tell that there's you know. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak and say that, you know, that the show was super influenced by it, but it just, it felt like it was somewhat sanitized. Uh, and I, I lose interest in things like that. So those, you know, having any kind of sort of, uh, and I know players are still going to, you know, be on guard and stuff like that in, in those, um, on those mic'd up moments, but anything like that, where you feel like you were saying, where you're seeing parts of the locker room that aren't necessarily shown on TV, you're seeing part of the game that isn't necessarily available to you. It's sterling. It's very interesting. Um, I wish there was a major league version of like a hard knocks. Um, yeah, it would be awesome. I mean, MLB seems pretty stingy about that sort of thing. They really like to control the message and um, it's too bad because I, you know, that is a great way to get people excited to get, get them to um, like get to know these players. And uh, you know, it's one thing seeing them on the field, uh, but it is another thing capturing them uh, in more candid situations. And there is a real art to that as a documentarian to, even though they know the camera is on them to getting them to act as if it weren't. And if you, if you hired the right people, I think it could be really effective. It's interesting because it ties to another aspect of things. And I don't know if the book is going to touch on this side of like the quote baseball movie, but documentaries, is that part of, of the, the, the book as well? Not really. Uh, there, it's going to mention a few because there are some, that I really like. And we're definitely in a little bit of a boom for baseball documentaries, you know, like Netflix documentaries uh, these last few years. In fact, I would argue that that's another place the baseball movie has gone, you know, Mm -hmm. it sort of got split and some of it went to TV and some of it went to documentaries. Um, I really love uh, the battered bastards of baseball. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they were going to make a real movie out of that a while back, uh, but it fell apart and that's, that's a shame. Um, uh, I really like the Doc Ellis documentary that came out a few years mm-hmm. ago. And there are a few others. Um, it's not going to be a big part of the book, but I think I think they deserve mention at least. So that's what I'll be doing. I think it's the and and the reason I wanted to bring this up was because things like Battered Bastards is so um it's so great. And it's just it, it really feels like uh it feels like Boulder. It feels like the cut of the same cloth of a Bull Durham or a major league, because again, you feel like you're getting sort of, again, to use the word unvarnished, an unvarnished mm-hmm. story of sort of like these guys and what they're going through. Um, other documentaries, you know, there are ones that are definitely sort of, you know, wrapped up in nostalgia, like the Ken Burns one or more than, a, yeah, whatever it was called back in the 2000s, HBO, more than just a game or whatever. I forget what it was. I don't think um, I know that one. It's, it's a very, I think Leo Schreiber did the narration on it. It's, it's, it's different from the Ken Burns one, but it's very, very mm-hmm. The Ken Burns one, it was basically all this like unlocked footage from when it was a game. I think that's what it was called. When it was okay. a game. And the name yeah. is condescending and, and, you know, because it's, oh, well, now it's not a game because it's a business. Yeah, it's always been a business. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but I remember growing up with that because, uh, again, like I said, I was obsessed with the whole history of baseball. But um, there are definitely documentaries that are in the, like the Jeter one I found to be really interesting uh, and definitely pushed more than I thought it would. 
especially with him as sort of, you know, onboarded, uh, I don't know, I think as a producer, his company producer or something like that. And I talked to the director for a thing of work. And, and again, there was a lot of, you know, there, there was, every time you talk to a director about these projects, so I don't know, it was very independent. They didn't really put their, their thumb on anything. Uh, and um, again, with that one, it definitely felt more honest. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, to use my, the, the word of the podcast, uh, unvarnished, uh, mm-hmm. and to an extent, it's still Derek Jeter's. So it's still going to be a level of polish, uh, and consideration for, for what he does, which I appreciate and respect as someone who's been, I mean, he's been an icon for a quarter century for a reason. It's not just what he does on the field. It's he's smart with how he like, you know, presents himself. Um, but even last dance, same thing, the era of sort of these sports biographies that are, authorized and semi-influenced uh is is a very interesting kind of side segment of like this overall story of how we tell the story of baseball and everything that's gone on within the history of baseball um well well you know i didn't i did not watch the Derek jeter documentary uh because i am i am allergic to all things <laughs> late pride, 90s Yankees baseball you're allergic to all things pride power and pinstripes yeah yeah that was a rough time to be in new york and be a Mets fan. Uh, I was at the 2000 World Series. Uh, that yeah, it, I was at Game Two in, in Yankee Stadium when uh, Clemens threw the bat at Piazza. He thought it was a ball. You know, it's interesting being a Yankee fan then and being a Mets fan now and watching that clip now. And I do seem to see it a little differently now. Uh, it, did, it did seem like he tried to throw a bat at, at the man, and not uh, he thought it was a ball. I, I can be very magnanimous about this. And I, I don't think he was, he said to himself, I want to throw this shard of a bat at my no, I don't think he's on national television. Vampire Slayer. Michael, <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think he was just in a moment of frustration or there's too much liniment on his balls. I don't know, but it, it, it <laughs> he, you know, I think he just chucked it uh, in frustration. I don't think it was at Piazza. And you can see from the clip, the Piazza isn't like Piazza is moving in a direction I don't know that it's in Clemens's periphery. It's also a bang bang kind of thing. But and and well, the, I, I mean, first of all, Clemens's per, uh, perspective on it. You know, steroids are a hell of a drug. First of all, <laughs> and uh, you know, he was definitely allegedly. allegedly he was definitely fired up, very fired up. And you know, he didn't just toss that bat aside; he chucked it like in anger. Oh, so yeah. I don't look. He was probably fired up because he's facing Piazza, who had owned him that year and and i think in prior years as well and uh and owned him after that as well so it was it was a very intense moment in a very intense game it was a bad look but in retrospect i he wasn't trying to hurt mike piazza that'd be the dumbest thing he could do no for sure i think um but like i said again it's it's it just hits very differently uh when you kind of cross the aisle but no, i understand completely uh the not wanting to kind of sort of bask in the the uh legacy uh no i respect i respect Derek jeter i really i mean how you you can't not respect Derek jeter if you're honest with yourself but i just yeah i don't need to see any more celebration of that team i saw enough in real time no that's that's great (laughs) but overall though the idea of these documentaries uh and i think that uh the nolan ryan documentary which is very good uh i know they're sort of involved i think Mm. in it but again it was very i mean nolan ryan's life isn't one that's like there's it's it's not as interesting as a jeter you know jeter obviously had the sort of you know you know the celebrity aspect of it new york mariah carey rumors jessica alba rumors on and on and on stuff like that you know the gift baskets and stuff like that there's more of a celebrity 
not, I don't want not necessarily that's quote compelling, but Nolan Ryan sort of had a more of a, a basic uh, origin story, but it's still very fascinating. But the idea of these sort of uh, athlete authorized uh, biopics or not biopics, excuse me, documentaries. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Ties back to something you were talking about at the very start with those sort of early, early baseball movies and sort of like the Babe Ruth story where, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or pride of the Yankees or things like that, that are meant to be, to, to look at an athlete's life with, with a softer focus and obviously not unearth anything that would be untoward because it was a very different time and we didn't really traffic in those kind of details or stories and, and which was obviously a lesser time narratively. Um, do you find that to be uh, an interesting kind of connection back to that era? Because to me, it indicates a thing that's obvious with baseball movies where they got better when they got more real mm-hmm. uh, and documentaries are better when they're more real. So to me, it's sort of, it, it should act as sort of a, uh, a cautionary tale. I think it's a good point. I, I think there are also some pretty big distinctions between the you know post-war baseball movies and the kind of documentaries you're talking about, which oh, yeah, is that, sure. and and there's a huge distinction to me between Pride of the Yankees and the Babe Ruth story, for example. You know, I think Pride of the Yankees is a truly excellent film, and and it's not just excellent because it's about a baseball player. It's excellent because in many ways it's not about baseball at all. It's a to me that movie has a lot to do with what was going on in the world at that time, which is uh, this was right at the start of America's involvement in World War II, and you know the narration that begins and ends that movie makes that direct correlation. They talk about World War II in the beginning and end of that movie, and to me that is a movie that is very much uh, sort of preparing Americans to deal with this vast loss of of American life that's about to occur, that is uh, young, able-bodied men, you know, are about to to come home in body bags. And watching Lou Gehrig do that in this movie, I, I really think that is intended to show to them the honor and sacrifice uh, that was about to occur and prepare them for that. And to me, that makes it a really, really artful film. And th- there's another movie called uh, The Stratton Story with, with Jimmy Stewart that I think is in a very similar vein, which is he is a, a real life player who got in a uh, hunting accident and had a leg amputated and then came back and continued to play baseball. And to me, this is also a movie about World War II. This is a movie about uh, people who were, you know, had physical or spiritual amputations and we're struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's all in this movie. And, you know, we can say that those are varnished takes on baseball, and they are. But part of the reason they're varnished is because they're trying to be about something more than baseball. And I really admire them for that. Now, the Babe Ruth story, for example, is, you know, it's pure hagiography. But uh, these documentaries, while they're very good, they're very well put together, I don't find them particularly artful in the sense that I don't think they're revealing anything more about the human condition than, you know, just who this one person is, really. I mean, maybe we're learning something about what it means to be a competitor by watching The Last Dance and by watching The Derek Jeter Show. But I don't think they are aspiring to any of the real comments on, you know, who we are as people that, that some of these earlier movies did. So I think they're valuable and I think they're fun. I don't know that they really grow interest in the game in any meaningful way. Maybe the Jeter one does, but I don't, I don't think the Nolan Ryan one really. will. Uh, but I think, I just think they're a lot of fun and, and, and 
we need to continue to create content for baseball fans. I mean, I think that's a, the game itself is obviously primary, but having content around the game is important too. Things that people can talk about, things that people can can watch and, and debate, especially in the off season. So I'm all for having more of these things. And, you know, they made one about the Mets uh, last year as well that, that I watched and that was fun. I, I, you know, I don't find it any of it particularly memorable in the way that a great film is, but I will watch it if it's on anytime. Yeah, I mean, again, I think you make a, a, a just a barrage of great points there, specific to uh, the sort of value uh, of the the larger message that they were in pursuit of with some of these older baseball movies. Which I will completely be honest, is it something I've never considered? Uh, I don't have as much experience with those movies in recent times and stuff I haven't watched in a few years, uh, more than a few years in a couple of cases. Um, it wasn't something I took away then, but I wasn't the level. I wasn't a viewer that was probably positioned well to take those things away at the time when I watched them. Uh, so that's very interesting and, and makes me want to uh, reconnect with some of those movies. So I was probably being a little glib there, I guess, uh, when I when I kind of made that that sort of connection, I think. Um, so, again, I think that's very interesting. Um, I think well, one of the reasons I'm writing this book, I mean, it's not the reason, but one thing I hope people will get out of it is that, you know, there were great baseball movies before the 80s. Like, that's what I really want people to see. I mean, I think Bang the Drum Slowly is an incredible baseball is, Yeah, that's a tremendous, yeah, that one is definitely really good. Sign, and yeah. not a lot of great ones in the 50s and 60s, but but there were some good ones in the, I actually think the original Angels in the Outfield the, from 1950 is a really good movie. And and I hope, uh, I hope people will uh, pick up the book and see that it starts in 1942 and not immediately put it down because there are, <laughs> there are some good movies from back then. I hope people will revisit. I do. I mean, I will say as a viewer, I have, uh, I feel like almost I was more open to experiencing older cinema when I was younger, uh, when I was a teenager than I am now. Mm. Um, I feel as though, I don't know why that is. I just feel somewhat disconnected from the wonder of it all. When I was younger, well, I absorbed everything. I would go to Blockbuster with the printout of the AFI 100 and try to knock things out when I was like 13. And now it's like I just watched, um, I just watched The Getaway. Um, no, excuse me, not The Getaway. Excuse me, the Great Escape, rather, uh, for the first time uh, a couple of uh, a couple weeks ago, and yeah. it was it was a little difficult for me just to sort of just because it just looks so different. It just feels so it just feels so divorced from. Uh, what I'm familiar with, I think, which is really a, not a, not a proud thing to say. Not, you cut it. You cut out for a minute. I didn't hear what movie you were actually. Oh, sorry. The great escape. Uh, I had seen the great escape for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Uh, somehow it missed uh, me. And uh, I just, um, it was, it was, it was great, but it was, it was a little hard for me to kind of absorb it. It's very interesting how like mm -hmm. when I was younger, I would have watched things black and white. Didn't matter. Absolutely. 1940s, 1950s. Sure. Well, you've probably gotten used. You've gotten used to a different pace of movies. I mean, movies have certainly gotten faster, and I, you know, I, they definitely haven't gotten shorter. Uh, but they they seem no. to have uh, the rhythms of the editing uh, are built for people with shorter attention spans, which in turn give us shorter attention spans the more we watch of them. So I think that's pretty understandable. And I have that problem too sometimes. You know, me and my wife watch a lot of movies from the 30s, and she likes those sort of champagne comedies uh, from that era, and I like them too, but you know, if I'm at all tired, I will just fall asleep during them. Uh, if we watch them at night, it's like it immediately puts me to sleep because the rhythms of them are just, my, my body is not prepared for them. Um, 
you know, maybe you just need one that you can sort of connect to and lock in. If you are going to try some of those old baseball movies, uh, I would I would strongly recommend the Stratton story as one to kind of start. Yeah, that with. one I've never seen before. I probably the Yankees have seen uh, many times. Uh, I, just, I haven't seen it in 20 years, probably, but I've, I have seen it many times. Uh, the Babe Ruth story I've seen many times. Uh, again, it's a mixed bag. The Babe Ruth story was, was kind of bad. So it's, yeah. it's one that I definitely. That's uh, a bad that's a bad movie. Yeah, that definitely pops up in my mind. And there are a couple others I'm I'm failing to grasp the names of that feel, again, I just feel sanitized. I understand what you're saying as far as like the bigger picture thing, but some of these don't feel like that. And I sort of feel like that's sort of, and like jumping back to what you were saying about the documentaries, um, we're not really learning about the game. We're not really learning anything we don't, if you're already a fan, you're not learning anything you probably don't already know, Uh, which is sort of brings the question of why you're taking the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than to just feel, you know, just kind of give into nostalgia uh, a little bit, but I do. Yeah, I, think, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, no, I mean, no. I, 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 I'm, I'm taking the long way around agreeing with your your <laughs> nation. Uh, I do think there are certain takeaways from a, a Jeter doc or a Jordan doc about um, excellence and and mm-hmm. uh, determination, uh, specifically the Jordan one, um, holding grudges and allowing grudges to power you. You know, if you're a writer, you know what that's about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, we should all have that. I took it personally. We should all have that mounted uh, and put up behind our, our heads. Oh, yeah. Attached a couple of editor's letters. Um, but Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got my nemeses who have no idea that oh, they're yeah. my nemeses. Don't, don't, don't worry. Definitely fair notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, the overall point, though, is is the, the best takeaway, I think. The idea that, uh, you know, it's great to have an ice cream shop with multiple flavors. It's great to have mm-hmm. all this content uh, that people can latch onto how, at whatever level of interest or familiarity with the story, with the player story. I'm like, oh, I watched the Jeter docuseries and I didn't really learn anything that I didn't know. Well, I'm, you know, I grew up watching Derek Jeter and, and I've, you know, re- reading, you know, Yankee magazine, you know, all that, you know, uh, you know, um, crap. Uh, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, just getting like, you know, sort of beaten into my brain. So of course I know all these stories, but there are people who don't, uh, who are interested in him as this, uh, interesting figure who sort of transcended, you know, baseball and, and the, really the last baseball player recently up until Atani really, who's transcended, you know, who's kind of gotten bigger than the game and gotten that kind of pop culture attention. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's, it's all levels and, and all interest levels. So it's really great to see so many different pieces things like 30 for 30 and and finding you know there's a there's a risk always that it's the assembly line is going to move too quick and people aren't going to be as Mm -hmm. on guard to make sure that the product is good but you know that's well you know when you start with michael jordan i mean there's a long way to fall because he was such a phenomenal figure in every possible way and Derek jeter is in that category as well i do think at some point they're going to dilute brand a little bit and uh you know maybe that's started already um but in the meantime you know i'm i'm fine with anything baseball related being out there i mean i'm not one of these people who feels a sense of impending doom over the future of the game i think the game's going to be fine and in fact i think they're they're tinkering too much to try to bring in a new audience in a lot of ways but on the other hand like I do want more people to love baseball. I would be thrilled if baseball ever returned to the stature it had in our society that it did when I was a kid. And anything that gets people interested and excited, you know, in the end, I'm I'm fine with that. And I think I think a series like that definitely works in that direction. 
Yeah, 100%. I think just on the larger game, any kind of, like I was saying before with the broadcast side of things, you know, experimentation is going to breed, uh, you know, innovation. Um, It's just a question of, uh, again, it's the same assembly line uh, thing. You know, does the assembly line start moving too quick and then it just becomes an I love Lucy sketch. (laughs) (laughs) The problem, and I don't know that Rob Manfred is the best person uh, to to man the pedals on, on the speed of the assembly line and that's that's my big worry um but i don't think he is but i don't think his replacement will be any better i i just think we're past the age of having a decent commissioner i think brockmeyer was the the best commissioner we could have ever <laughs> yeah, that's right that's honestly where we i think we, we close there <laughs> i'll take it great fun episode did i lie great episode really great conversation with noah really appreciate him stopping by the show uh, to to give us his insight on baseball movies again i feel like i'm gonna still ask every other episode because I, I i still love talking about baseball movies but the bar is high right now for people to to best that conversation uh when it comes to baseball movies uh just an uncommon amount of candor and expertise that noah brings to this uh is again super super uh grateful for him stopping by uh you can uh find him on twitter for now again we're gonna use that disclaimer now <laughs> You can find him on Twitter for now uh, at uh, Noah Gittell. It's uh, N-O-A-H-G-I-T-T-E-L-L. Link will, of course, be in the show notes. Uh, as I said, you can find his work uh, all over the place. New York Times, Ringer, Guardian, Atlantic, uh, Polygon, Decider, BBC. It's, it's all listed in his bio on Twitter. Uh, he's written some great pieces, uh, again, on film. Also, like I said, the New York Times piece, which will be in the show notes as well, which you have to read, required reading. Uh, again, one of the best baseball articles I read this year. Um, so again, want to just, again, thank Noah for stopping by. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter for now at J T A B R Y S. Um, next episode, uh, still looking to book a guest, but looking to focus at least within the next couple of episodes, one of the next couple of episodes on baseball cards. I haven't really had a chance to do that since our first episode with Mike Oz back in the day, a couple of years ago now what's time in the apocalypse. Uh, but, uh, looking to talk, uh, looking to talk about the hobby, uh, which is uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, and I'm I'm sure near and dear to uh, a lot of the hearts of the people uh, listening. So uh, that is on the horizon. We're going to continue to pump out episodes, especially as we are kind of locked into the off season period here, where uh, you know people are desperate for their baseball fix. So we're going to try and uh, bring it uh, bring it to you here uh, with this show, and uh, that's all there is. Thank you again for listening. As always, uh, goodbye. Mm-hmm.